0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
2: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
3: (laughs) Oh, Oh, hello out there, you theater-goer, you. Welcome to, uh, behind the scenes, as it were. I'd like to introduce myself. I'm D.O.A. Berg, producer of fine films. That's right. And if I may, I would like very much for uh, some of you folk out there to meet some of the people that are to blame for... uh, I'm sorry, I mean that are responsible for this film. We're going to show you some scenes from. (laughs) Excuse me. First, of course, I'd like to have you meet the writer. And, of course, without the writer, there would be an overabundance of paper. The writer. The man we all respect probably more than anyone else in the picture business. And this is our writer. D.T. Stronghold. Hello, hello Mr. Byrd. I, I love you, great producer. And of course, where would we all be if it weren't for the director? Yes, the mighty director. Shh! Schwein! Can't you see I'm creating? Oh! It's you, Mr. Bird. It's a pleasure to have you on the staff. Oh, I broke well, both my... Oh. Ah, they're all uh, strange. But here. Here is our star. The man who will deliver us from TV. And once again, having the theaters bursting with laughter. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Go ahead, Jerry. Show us some of the funny things that uh, we've been talking about that are in this picture. Go ahead, Jared. Some of them kind of stiffen up a little when you ask them to ad lib. (laughs) Thanks, anyhow. Come with me, I'll show you myself. Yes, indeed, this will be much easier. You'll see some of the scenes and, uh, well, roll it. Go on. The Bellboy, filmed completely in fabulous Miami, where Bellboy Jerry turns the fantastic Fontainebleau Hotel into his own private madhouse, tangling with the bags and the babes. Oh, I don't Those beautiful Miami models in the altogether delightful situations that only Jerry can cover up. It's a series of silly sequences. The visual diary of a few weeks in the life of a madcap who makes for fun.
2: the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Craig Bierko.
1: Hello, everybody. You left a pause. I figure I should do something like that. That is correct.
2: Also with us in the booth this week is Professor Peter Flynn.
1: Uh, hello. Happy to be here.
2: This week, we are looking at the 1960 film from director Jerry Lewis. The film also stars Lewis as the titular bellboy Stanley, a put-upon hotel worker, and his adventures at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. The film doesn't necessarily have a three-act plot per se, but is more of an opportunity for a string of gags. There isn't really a whole lot to ruin with spoilers on this episode, except for maybe spoiling the gag. so just be warned. Now, Craig, when was the first time you saw The Bellboy, and what did you think, sir?
1: probably saw it when I was actually in Florida visiting my grandparents, who lived in Miami Beach. It was very bizarre, like as a child, realizing I grew up in New York, I could get on a plane in a blizzard in New York and fly into that kind of sunshine and then turn on the television and see Florida, which looked more like New York than New York did when we left it. It was bleak, black and white. But uh, I remember as a child watching it like a Bugs Bunny cartoon.
4: Uh, I actually have an answer for you on this. And, and I imagine there are very few films I would be able to give you this specific an answer. But <laughs> I, I remember seeing it in the mid to late 80s. So I was, uh, I must have been 13 or 14. It was in my grandparents. It was a Sunday afternoon. And it was RTE 2 which is the national broadcaster. The reason I remember it, and it's the same reason I remember seeing Touch of Evil and Playtime, Jacques Tati's Playtime, around about the same time, and seeing these films and wondering, what the hell is this? There's nothing like this. And having Touch of Evil explained to me. And then years later, seeing Playtime on TV again and recognizing that was the film I saw when I was a kid. And I looked at it and I thought, this must be art. When people talk of art, this must be what art is. And The Bellboy has a similar recollection for me because I saw it in my grandparents' uh, kitchen on this Sunday afternoon. My grandparents are talking over it. Nobody's really paying attention. To it, but I'm fixated on this thing because again, it's unlike anything I've seen before. Now, my grandparents had a black and white TV, and it, it, you know, so I, I didn't know if the film was black and white or color, um, and it was, of course, uh, you know, panned and scanned. Presentation, so I wasn't seeing it to, to its fullest effect. But it was just unlike anything I'd seen before, and yet at the same time familiar because of the Stan Laurel um, character that kind of comes in and out. So it was familiar and entirely strange. But now that I I, I look back, uh, you know, and and uh, or now that I'm much older and I've grown to to adore Touch of Evil and Playtime but (laughs) the bad boy, I don't know. But that said, it is still unlike most anything else I've
2: seen. In that sense, I was right about it. I saw this one probably mid to late 90s. By that time, I already knew who Jerry Lewis was, of course. Um, Jerry Lewis had already kind of let's say, fallen from grace a little bit. He was now the muscular dystrophy, the guy who would take over your TV on Labor Day, always that kind of sweaty, schmaltzy, uh, the slicked hair, the very self-important way that he spoke. And I never really understood why Jerry Lewis was Jerry Lewis. And then there was the whole joke of, you know, the French love Jerry Lewis and you Americans, you're too barbaric to understand why they love him. So then I finally saw the bellboy and the scales fell from my eyes. And I said, this is amazing. I had never seen other than the, you you mentioned cartoons, Craig, and this is like a living cartoon. i had never seen anything quite like it in physical form. Now, I hadn't seen Tati or any of those other uh, uh, filmmakers. I had just a smattering of Buster Keaton, but not nearly as much as I should have. And seeing this made in a sound era with a very silent character, and then the way that he lampoons himself and all these things, I really fell in love with this movie. And that's what started me on the whole Jerry Lewis journey, seeing this, seeing the errand boy, seeing the Patsy, seeing Nutty Professor, but none of those really could have come about had it not been for the success of the Bellboy, and him using this as his opportunity to show that he was a director, and such an amazing director at that.
1: It's funny that, you know, Peter just mentioned uh, Tati. I, I play times the one Tati movie I own, and it It always struck me watching that, that it was, it has a kind of, I mean, it has music to it and it has sound to it, but it's a kind of silent jazz. In fact, it's like a, almost like a, like a bebop, like it's a silent bebop, you know, uh, if, and everything seems to happen on the beat, you know, you can almost clap to it. I did a horrible movie. I'm an actor, Peter. I, I did, uh, uh, and I've been in some, some good movies and I've, I've also been in the three Stooges re- remake which was, you know, uh, to quote David Letterman, the biggest waste of film since my parents wedding. What I noticed was the guys who played the three Stooges in the movie worked extremely well together. Uh, it's kind of uncanny the way they work together. The, 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 you know, there was no reason to do it, but, what they developed was a kind of natural. They discovered that there was a musicality to it. The things tended to happen a kind of a four-four time, you know, bum bum bum. And if you kind of just, it's what I discovered while I was watching it. Just to test it out, I was watching uh, the Bellboy. I was kind of just tapping along with it. And Jerry's, I don't think it was conscious. I think it's the fact that he's a drummer and a, a natural musician you've ever seen him do uh, in Cinderfella, that thing he does with cute you know uh-huh. and um, they, they, they're they're balletic and he's he's not a trained dancer it's just it's pure energy and whatever it is that fuels him but it's extremely musical and and I have studied music i'm I, I don't consider myself to be you know an accomplished musician per se but i I have had develop, had to develop a sense of you know, uh, of music. And when I watch Jerry Lewis in movies like this, especially, but in almost everything that he does, and when I, I'm not a big, huge Stooges fan, but I'm a big Marx Brothers fan, or any of the great comedians, and certainly Tati in his direction, there's a music to it. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons it's so satisfying is that without even realizing, And without even listening, you're experiencing you're experiencing something that's musical. There there are comedies that people like to watch over and over again, the way they listen to songs. And if I can extend this just one inch further, uh, I used to listen to Steve Martin's Let's Get Small over over and over again. Well, you know, back you listen to it now, and and it's been that kind of humor is now so a part of, you know, that kind of irony, uh, you know, irony layered on top of irony is is such a part of the culture that it's almost quaint. But when it first exploded, I'd never heard anything like that and I couldn't get enough of it. It took me a while to just get my mind around what he was doing, which was telling jokes without a punchline essentially. But I could listen to it over and I had it all memorized. And then when I grew up, even now I talk to people, uh, who are comedy fans. Uh, and they, there are certain albums that they, they can, they remember every single word. And I think it's because it is musically satisfying. (laughs) And that was the way I felt when I, I revisited this movie It had been a long time since I'd seen it. And I don't know that I'd ever sat through it in its entirety. It's a lot to take in its entirety. Uh, It's a lot. It's a big, it's a big comedy infusion, but, uh, uh, in, in segments, I mean, I just think it it, it is like, it's almost as a series of like suites, you know, of, 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 if that's the right term of, of just musical movements.
4: Uh, that's fascinating to to hear and i i'm not sensitive to that type of reading but it's it's fascinating to me because if if you uh, compare it to music that's that's to say that the film has this underlying beat this underlying rhythm and structure yeah right and i look at the film and and i don't want to be overly negative coming straight out of the gate because i think there's wonderful stuff in it and i i think lewis himself as a as a performer can be Close to genius, um, yes. but I look at this film and I see no structure. I see a film that almost starts from scratch again every three minutes.
1: Well, to be uh, fair, you know, there's literally a man who comes out and tells you. That. <laughs> I mean, that's. I and, mean, if every if, could you imagine, like if I, if they had done that with like beaches, if some if someone had come out and said, "Listen, a lot of you women are going to like this. A lot of you men." You need to get up to wander around if there's things If you want to let your mind wander, you may want to, you know, uh, like that beaches was probably a, a poor one to pick. I couldn't think of any other <laughs> reference, but it, but it, but, you know, it has no structure. And yet a guy comes out at the beginning and says, you know, this movie has no structure. So let's go. Which is I mean, you know. which is
4: such a it's it's the get out of jail free card to the I guess film, so. you know and yeah. you know the film is I I look at it and to be unkind to be uncharitable. Go ahead, the you're you, write, is,
1: you got a friend in me.
4: it's seventy minutes in length, right? And when they right. screened this for the first time, it didn't have that intro, so it must have been what sixty five minutes, sixty six, and Three
5: I. Yeah.
4: I, I If I'm correct, the, the, the audience response wasn't great. So they put this thing up front, That's which is funny. ludicrous. And it's so detached stylistically in terms of the performance of the, you know, from everything that follows. And I look at it and I think, yeah, they've just extended the length a few more <laughs> minutes with this.
1: Then don't you think, but, out of fairness, that Michael Caine should be given a couple of weeks to get <laughs> just sit in front of a camera and say, look, uh, I, I had a house. I had been divorced. Maybe yeah. I, I had, you know, kids, I liked nice cars. Uh, and yes, I made a movie about a, a shark chasing yeah. a family down a beach. You I, you know? Know, I, I, mean, I
4: watched part of that film last night.
1: <laughs> uh, Jaws I hope.
4: Yes. I, I hope we got oh, a nice house God. out of it.
1: What was that? What was I don't want to get too far off of it, but was was it – as ridiculous as oh, I've it's heard, horrible.
4: yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely horrible. But there's another film guilty of padding, you know, and they put in that yeah. gratuitous flashback to, right. um, um, uh, to to the to the original. Anyway, but you know what, Mike, g- going off of what you said too, well, uh, you growing up in Ireland, um, Jerry Lewis, uh, you know, came with no context because I, I I did not know anything about Lewis. We didn't have the marathons, the Um, uh, marathons is not the right word right the telethon Telethon. Telethon. yeah Um, we didn't have any of that so you know I'd seen this film detached from anything and then it was years later I I kind of became acquainted with him properly but at that point that was after I had gone through Chaplin and Keaton and Tati and and um, so I I see him in a different light but I, I love this idea of you know um, Craig what you're talking about this this kind of musicality and this this inner rhythm to the film because so I'm not um I'm not sensitive to it but that's that's Well to be
1: fair my girlfriend is an accomplished musician and I said now come here come here uh I'm not going to make you watch the whole thing but can you I um, you know I strapped her down for just a moment <laughs> and, and we watched uh I don't remember which scene it, it may have the scene where it occurred to me was when he was setting up the chairs. I counted it. Out. Oh
4: right, which
5: is and early in the, the film. If yeah. you go,
1: yeah, if you go one, two, three, four, two, uh-huh. two, three, four, three, on the one and the two, you know, at the beginning of each count of eight or or four, he does a turn or he does a hesitation, and uh-huh. it's pretty clear to me. But yeah. I don't say I think it's innate. I think it's just right. his ability as a drummer. Like if you uh-huh. there's a there's a moment of him. I don't know how big a Jerry Lewis fan you are or or, or not, but there's a moment during his Dick Cavett interview where they come back from commercial uh, and he's doing with Bobby Rose Garden. Uh, he's just improvising to that same number "Cute," which he did in Cinderella. Yeah, and it's brilliant. And that's huh. all improvised, and it's yeah. in, it's nothing planned. It's just him doing his shtick, and that's kind right. of what I felt this movie was. It, it 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 really wasn't anything but a guy making faces in the bathroom yeah. in the mirror. Well, it's
4: to me watching it, and the background to the film it was it was made while he was performing uh, at the Fontainebleau, and and I believe yeah. elsewhere in Las Vegas at this point in time. So I look at it as. As the 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 result of a man who's in stand-up mode, and yeah. it's that rat-a-tat-tat fire of jokes that he's in. And now I've never seen his performance. I'm going to assume that it's it's very disjointed and and um, and episodic. And the film has that has that feel to it, right? You get a laugh, and then you move on to the next. To the next gag and the next. Uh, I don't think. Setup. It's, it, go ahead. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
4: No, 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 no. And I, I mean, you had talked about silent bebop and silent jazz to describe Tati. Yeah. I feel like that's probably, you know, the the, the mindset of, of this film, or at least, the, you know, the background to right. where, where Lewis was mentally or creatively while making this film.
1: Yeah. Without quite. Without although, although he paints a very. Clean picture, like it they're almost like New Yorker cartoons. Each each setup, this, and the thing about Tati is, I think he's a, he's truly a visual artist. I mean, yeah. his, his play playtime is is, is just gorgeous. Right, I, 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 and 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 the, and the concepts and. How he pulls the absurdity out of you know architect that architectural movement and uh, yeah. I I can watch that film endlessly. This right. film I could not watch endlessly.
4: Right, but so. I see echoes. I see uh, maybe echoes isn't the right word because playtime comes many years, seven years I, I believe after after this film. Yeah. But you know. Lewis does have this eye for architecture. You mentioned the chair scene, which is my favorite scene in it. And He's got this beautiful. wonderful long shot and he plays with yes, the depth as the character goes, you know, walks off and then comes Yes, back. And so,
1: the curve at the top of the ceiling. He actually uses that. I mean, it's okay. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, here's a you
4: know, here's a set that's already been constructed for him. But you jump forward a few more years later, and he one-ups the Phantom Blue Hotel with with the uh, with that set, wonderful set, in the ladies'
2: man, right? Oh. <laughs>
5: that is
4: one of
2: the best sequences. That was exactly. another moment what, what's that? where it's just what like. Uh, The ladies' man, where he's got that whole uh, women's hotel or women's apartment building, and you see each of the apartments, and there's a Ah. whole musical number going on, and each person (laughs) is kind of interacting with the beat. And you see it's the cover of the Total Filmmaker book that Lewis wrote, and it's just this amazing set. I've never seen a set
1: like that before. It's like
2: Rear Window, but uh, a comedy.
1: For those of us, who are who are fans of yours, Mike? You know, and and luck, and I'm lucky enough to appear every once in a while. But uh, how do you get that book? I've been looking for it, but I'm probably not looking in the right place. You is know, that just I, an Amazon thing? Is it, I read is it available it. at all? I,
4: I just finished reading it because you can download it for free. Oh, you can. Should I? Uh, no, and I think legally, not illegally. I I know oh, I great. acquired a copy online some PDF download. So it is available. The Total Filmmaker, which I think was published in, in, was it 71, 70, 71 thereabouts?
2: I think so, yeah. It was It was based on his lectures that he was giving. I think it was USC or UCLA.
1: That a lot of people yeah. took, a lot of renowned people took and swore by, right? That, that, that's true.
4: Martin Scorsese was a student, uh, you know, and of course would later have uh, Jerry Lewis in um, in in The King of Comedy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, this is to, to me, when I look at the bell boy, I see all the greatness of Jerry Lewis to come in, in its infancy. I see this eye for yeah. architecture. I see this, um, you know, these, these, these brilliant visual gags you'd mentioned New York times, you know, that just that, that kind of very concise visual gags, the early one about the, the car engine, um, the great right, one with right. the with the with the chairs, and there are infinitely better examples. Only a year or two years later into
2: into his films, in, in my opinion. Well, that's the thing that I like about his work is that he mixes. I mean, some of these are just regular gags, but then so much of them go into that cartoonish realm, go into the surreal realm, where you've got like, right. the fat lady who comes in and loses yeah. all, that weight, all that weight in two weeks. He gives her a box of chocolates as a goodbye gift, <laughs> cut to her an hour later with all the wrappers around her, and she's huge again.
4: <laughs> But, you know, there's... Now, th- this, I was thinking of that very scene right before we got on the phone to talk to one another. There is a scene that kind of has... Maybe two beats to it, right? You've got the setup, and then you've got you've got the payoff, and there's a separation of weeks in between, and the the calendar flips by through the month of February. So you know a mm-hmm. couple of weeks, perhaps, instead of parsing that out over the film, you know, we go to Mrs. Hard Tongue or Hard Tongue. Early in Our the time. film, and, yeah. and then, yeah, and then maybe 30 minutes later, we come back to her for the payoff and the gag. He right. just compresses it into one moment and then moves on to another gag and then moves on to another. So, you know, there's no development or, the, you know, it's stop and start with the film. And maybe that's the genius of the film, but it's, 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 it's what I find frustrating with the film.
1: How old was he? Do we know how old was he at this
2: point? Well, let's see. This was 1960, and I'm trying to yeah. remember when he was born. 1960 was a very busy year for him, as were most of the years at this time. He had just done Visit to a Small Planet, and I think he had already worked on Cinderfellow, or maybe this was a break between, but he was right there with all of these movies. He was born in 1926, 36, 46, 56.
1: So he was, and there's also it. shots of—I've seen footage of him— entertaining um or while he was shooting you know a nightclub sequence was it, i think it was for this film it's you can see it on youtube but they have like the raw footage of him trying to get some metadata right. for a different film but uh have you seen that
4: i have and it's i think it's a dvd extra feature on the um on the disc i have seen that yeah
1: yeah it's kind of neat but he's so he was also doing his live act i think he was also right. he, he, he was really kind of an institution at this point
4: I mean he'd done all those films with uh, he'd been on stage for i think over or or in films for over ten years by this stage because I think he began his first film as forty nine uh my friend irma that's right nineteen forty nine yeah yeah so he's a veteran at this day he's still young he's in his mid thirties you know and
1: yeah hmm. and I think probably so so if it's the 60s, what, years, what year did he break up with Dean? That was in the 50s. Was that 50s? Right before, late 50s again, am I right?
2: Yeah, I think so, because Delicate Delinquent was 57, and I know that was uh, one that they did together. I'm, I can't remember if Don't Give Up the Ship was their last one. I don't remember which
4: I, one. I thought it was Hollywood yeah, or I was Bus, Circus but I, one, I could be wrong. I thought it was a circus, Yeah, yeah there but, you go. We've all that, done our research for today.
1: Well, 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 it's it's such a fable and who knows what the real truth is. It's been so muddied and Dean Martin isn't here to speak, you know, for himself. Not that he probably would, but I wonder if there was an element of heartbreak in this. This is way too deep to be going, but I have always thought of Jerry Lewis as kind of the Richard Nixon of comedy, you know, (laughs) that this is a deeply, deeply split. Uh, you know, personality. Somebody who plays a nine-year-old, but also gets up there and talks about the film industry with such bitterness and can yeah. go so bitter and right. cruel. You know, yeah. Uh, th- th- and, that I wonder what sort of state he was in while he was making this movie. Right, and yet,
4: Craig, I I see this film, and you know, having revisited it, uh, yeah. I was kind of surprised at the depth of the affection in the film for the industry. I mean he goes out of his way right. to bring in a variety of of performers. You've got uh, Frankie Carr and the novelties who have this big sequence in the middle of the film. There's um Milton Burl. Milton Berle. Milton Berle, of course uh, there's the guy with them inv- the invisible apple um Larry oh, Best. Yeah. Who is that? You guy? know back- this guy guy called Larry back- Best. He was a you know like a nightclub performer. Yeah, um yeah. and he you know he puts these people in and he he stands back and lets them do their thing. Yeah. And I, I just watched Chaplin and Keaton in limelight the other night. And Chaplin doesn't let Keaton do that. Chaplin completely, that right? you know, he's constantly taking over the frame in that great sequence that the two of them have in Limelight. Right. And I, I Jerry Lewis in my head, the chaplain as the total filmmaker, the complete egomaniac. Um, but yes. t- in this film, I see Lewis as, as, you know, very generous and affectionate toward, uh, others in his same field. And I think the, the
1: equivalent of a vanity project, in you the know, oh it, absolutely oh, yes you know yeah
4: complete yeah. yes yeah absolutely Absolutely. and i think that's kind of the contradictions right in 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 lewis as a as a performer and a and a artist if you want to use that term
1: There's, There's so i many. think he is yeah he's he's just a, he's a excuse me for interrupting go ahead he's, no no
4: go for it. i didn't have anything he, more he, interesting to say
1: I doubt that. He (laughs) just seems to be a hurricane of contradictions. Yeah. You know, like a a twister. I I was always very, I don't know that I ever, maybe in some of the earlier stuff where it really was just silly, crude cut, you know, meant to appeal simply to children. And, and you know, but. As I grew older, there was always an element of fear and blackness there that I sensed.
4: Right. Term it as contradictory and complex is – it could be – maybe that's the, the euphemistic way of putting it because the other way to put it is that he's just imprecise. As a filmmaker, like I was uh, just before we got on, I, I scrubbed through the film again, and I'm I was looking at the sex jokes in the film. Right, there's a piece early right. on about the bra, and right. and he you know he's, he's he's trying to hang the bra. Then there's that scene with. There's a a tired guest in the hotel, very attractive woman who falls asleep on his, on his shoulder. And then, of course, there's that scene, great, great scene when he, he goes into the room and, and all these, um, models are, are undressing. And I'm looking at it and I'm wondering, okay, is he, is, is he sexual? Is, is his response sexual? Is it confusion? Is it repressed sexuality? Is he yeah. pre-sexual? Is he sexual? Is he asexual? Yeah. I can't quite get a grip on it. I don't quite know I, what, yeah. he, what his relationship is to this. The mugging is so broad that I can't quite get to really what he's trying to say here. Whereas with Chaplin, yeah. you never doubt that. You'd, you'd, you'd have no confusion as to what his specific response was.
1: Yeah, a childlike um, sort of shyness, yet a fascination that you know that, right. that, that uncomfortable and, awkwardness. Yeah, but and, with, yeah,
4: and an arousal uh, too, because when that woman
1: uh,
4: leans on his shoulders and, and he's awkward at first, and then he moves in for a kiss. It's as if the sexual impulses can't be controlled anymore. (laughs) And he moves in for a kiss, right? Which in 1960 would have had a certain meaning. And today's day and age would have a totally different uh, meaning. And I don't want to cast a a contemporary judgment on his persona in the film. I'm just confused by what it means for the character, who this
1: character is. uh, Yeah, I think... Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying, and it's yeah. frustrating, but the use of the word mean or meaning in this conversation has <laughs> as much place as the word uh, Nazi. I, I just, I I, I, can't, it's just, I can't understand. It, it, there's, there's not, I mean, obvious, it was obviously like a studio or somebody, maybe even he stepped in and said, look, if we're going to release this thing, we have to have somebody come out and say, look, you got to lower your expectations.
5: Yeah. You know, this is is a
1: comedian sketchbook. There's a G this is a glimpse inside a genius mind, you know, and that's good selling. That's very good selling. Yeah. But um, is it, is
4: it for you almost like a case of automatic writing? I mean, he's not even, there's no conscious, there's very little consciousness. It's just flowing from the id almost. Right.
1: Yes, as a as a writer myself, I had someone that I, I worked with once who put who called it mobile mind, which is you know uh, you know most jobs you sit down and you write at a desk, or if you're a journalist you might write it at a desk after you've done your research, but as a as a a writer of drama, and I would imagine somebody you know who's God knows what he was fueled by. Uh, right. it, during these has probably a mic, a hard mix of anger, scotch, and back pills at this point, yeah. you know,
5: yeah.
1: Uh, but, um, if that storm was even brewing yet, but the the mobile mind, which is you write as you get up and walk and, and you can Gershwin, like maybe somebody's typing and assistant is typing, but I just imagine Jerry Lewis up and walking around right. and playing with things and, and somebody taking notes. That's what yeah. I always, mean, What do you guys think?
4: Uh, It makes perfect sense to me.
2: I think, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. For me, the most uh, successful part of this film, and it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, Peter, when it comes to the the setup and the immediate payoff, is that there's a sequence in here where we don't have payoff, 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 right after uh, one another. And it's actually the whole sequence with Jerry Lewis. When oh, he yeah. Comes into town. We've got right. two mm-hmm. amazing camera moves happening here. We've got a joke where the cars arrive at the Fountain Blue and the long line of the entourage is getting out of the car. And the way that the camera then moves around to show us that that other door had to have been closed the whole time, right? wink. Wink. And then Lewis finally gets out and we go back around and that's all one take, which is really nice. And then we get another one of those after we get introduced to Jerry Lewis and all of his fawning entourage, they're all wearing their sunglasses and they're all laughing hysterically at his jokes, even when he's talking about his aunt just having right, died. Right. Love <laughs> yeah, that right right, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. again they all get into the elevator and you hear Lewis talking, 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 and again all one camera set up, and then you see Stanley come out from the side and it's just this really nice thing, and that Actually carries on a little bit where we get Jerry Lewis again because I was thinking rewatching it today I was like is that it or no is there a little bit more right. and then the Milton Berle stuff plays into it yeah. And yeah the double Milton Berle the double Jerry Lewis and that to me is probably the best whole sequence of the film and I kind of wish that it yeah. had carried on like that
4: you're absolutely yeah. right I mean that's that's the most extended. Uh, sequence in, in in the film right. Um I'm I, I wanna say it lasts about ten to fifteen minutes or so from which is an eternity and a seventy two uh, minute film. Exactly right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a it's a good good sizable chunk. It might not be quite so long now that I think it's a seventy minute film, but it is a sizable chunk. You're right. And that is a very oh, yeah. nice camera move over the over the car to reveal the door, yeah being shot.
1: But you're talking about the development of a of a joke. There's no there's no there's no character. You meet you meet Bugs Bunny and he he enters Bugs Bunny, leaves Bugs Bunny. Right. He's our yeah. J- he's Jared.
4: But here's and, but uh, but I think to, to, to what Mike is saying that you have a you introduce a joke setup oh, oh! here's yeah. Jerry Lewis arriving as himself. Right. And then right. you explore it and you investigate it, you elaborate upon it, and then you cap it with a related joke of doubles with um, uh, Milton Berle. So yeah, there's there's right, an evolution right, right. That of, really of
2: the right. joke. And you're, you're absolutely right, Mike. Yeah, I take back what I said. Just delete what I said earlier on, if you can. I was amazed too that the other bellboys actually recognized that he looks like Jerry Lewis because yeah. at first that seven...
1: is yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. that's the thought that I've always had it's been a joke of mine since high school it's been one of those go to jokes is like I love the movie The Verdict absolutely brilliant why doesn't anybody at any point go up to this guy who's having the worst <laughs> time in his life and say you know what I know it's rough hopefully a case will come along but can I tell you something I've never seen anybody look more like Paul Newman. Why don't you get some work as a celebrity lookalike? Get yourself through this tough time. Get a place. You would work all the time. I mean, right. it's uncanny, you know? It, it like, And, and I, I would always wonder as a kid, like, in these movies, where's – and this movie addresses it. Is there no Jerry Lewis? You know, well, there is. He looks exactly like him. They make it, you know, <laughs> but but it's kind of a funny phenomenon of film that like, uh, you know, there's a James Bond, but there's no Sean Connery. There's no, you know, it always right. made me laugh. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. Surely there's some Jack Ward to say, look, Paul Newman, you're, you are rather, you look like Paul Newman. <laughs> yeah.
1: Stop. You yeah. Know. Well, you look like, ja- <laughs> and then, yeah, just, you look like Jack Ward. This yeah. is weird. Man. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Cheer up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well but this how is, could this get weirder okay that's right that, that 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 that's but Nathan. this i mean this, that's, that, this is bizarre yeah
4: and this of <laughs> course speaks to the contradictions of the character and and within the film right is that and i you know i i did i mike i looked at that scene again today just to to refamiliarize myself with it and it's 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 like when Jerry Lewis appears as Jerry Lewis, he wants to remind people he's funny. So he's yeah. suave and sophisticated and urbane and and okay. successful, but he also wants to to desperately remind people that hey, I'm also the comedian. So he mugs, there's the bit with the hat that gets smushed and then they follow him into the room and
2: and, and hold it. Just hold yes, it. There's a lot exactly. of things I want to do, but for now just Hold it. I mean, that is such a Jerry Lewis Yeah. Yeah. So he cannot
4: cannot play the straight role for longer than a few beats before the comedy comes in. And then, you know, there are moments when he's playing Stanley. And, you know, he's mugging and he's putting on the silly faces. But he's also a guy who's 34, 35. He's a good-looking, handsome man. And that pokes through. Uh, Yeah, You know, it's it's like who
1: happens to be functionally retarded. (laughs) And yet at the same time,
4: but again, you know, at the same time, he's he's he puts the chairs in order, you know, and then he almost and then he becomes, you know, the conductor to the invisible orchestra where he assumes a certain level of authority and power and will. And, you know, so again, there's that. That contradiction. But I watch this film and I I think always of my least favorite moments in the Marx Brothers films when Harpo plays the harp and his face suddenly ceases to become Harpo the clown and becomes – what was Harpo's real? It wasn't Julius, right? That was – uh, that, was, that
1: was Groucho.
4: That was yeah. Groucho. But he becomes he becomes the non harpo. He it, becomes the musician, yeah. and his face just loses the clown, the softness of the clown's character. And I see that with Jerry Lewis all the time. He's just zipping in and out. He's morphing in and out of the the goofball, and 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 then this you know the handsome, successful uh, writer director, total filmmaker type. Um, yeah. Which I suppose explains why there's so many, he plays multiple roles in so many
1: films, and frequently himself, right? Do you think it, that it's possible that, that this, he may have intended this, who knows what, I, I've never heard him publicly speak about this, or, or uh, what his, what, you know, what the PR was. But yeah. I feel, you know, when I stepped back from it, when I was watching it this time, uh, you know, a little bit more sophisticated, not too much, but a little bit more sophisticated than the nine-year-old I was when I first saw it. Uh, there is, you know, it is a clown car bit. That is the classic clown car bit when they all start coming out. And what they are aren't they studio functionaries and and oh, right. you know they're his posse. That yeah. that says something that he is actually making a comment. It doesn't have structure, but it has uh, it has some bite to it. Yeah, and it is it has a, it has some nasty entitled uh, you know um. There's something not garish, but there's there's yeah, there's some there's there's some punches thrown.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You're 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 right. And, and that was the you know point you'd made earlier, too, that there's a yeah. there's an edge to this film and a dissatisfaction. And and, you know, there's a point where he he just he rolls his eyes at the obsequious uh, hotel manager.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um,
4: uh, you know, where you just see this this Jerry Lewis that has yeah, that has contempt. For his mass audience, right? Well, at the say, same
1: what time, what was he saying at that in the end during the union? You know what? I got. I was so conscious of how late I had. I, was, I can't stop apologizing for that. But uh, but that I didn't really. It didn't register with me what he was saying at that union meeting. Do you remember the context?
2: Oh, of the right! At of the end he, of the film, when they yeah yeah all the union guys are going off and we need this and we need that and he bangs on the table and gets everybody's attention and it's basically okay now it's time and uh the boss comes in and he's just like you you're the guy because he was standing up and everybody was right right. to him (laughs) you're the guy you're you're the troublemaker blah blah blah. and it's it's almost like that uh (laughs) that line from goodfellas you know how come you never say anything and he just says nobody ever asked yeah and that's basically uh, it. The, mm-hmm. then they give them. But there's the also story.
1: I wonder what in his career at that time, if he was getting blamed and felt like, you know, listen, I don't I, I don't want to accuse anybody of being a narcissist. I'm sure he's been accused of being a tad self-centered at times and self-serving. Yeah. But I wonder if at that time he was blamed for the the breakup of he and Dean and whatever else he was dealing with in his
0: his life.
1: And I know that, honestly, I don't want to tear into Jerry because I love Jerry. And it doesn't, it's not, that's not a person's personal life. I'm only talking about it in terms of how it's reflected in this film. If at that point, you know, he was dealing with the humiliation of, of the Beatles having broken up and like, you know, like yoga, like Yoko or Paul being basically blamed for being the problem that robbed people and also himself of so much joy that I wonder that speech when I, remember when I was hearing it was, Oh, I'm, I've been tricked in bias. I'm a victim of circumstance, Yeah, you know what I mean? Like I'm being caught saying something, but somebody else could, somebody else should be standing up and saying this
4: stuff. I just got caught saying it. Yeah, I, I I see. It's an that's an interesting read. I I don't know. I don't know what what the. You, I think the the breakup with Dean Martin was several years prior. I don't know what the fallout yeah. was. Come nineteen sixty, I did watch the other night. I watched there's a documentary that he executive produced called I think Method to the Madness. Oh, um, yeah. how was that? How was that? Uh, which is which is a very glowing, you know, it is all the truth of Holocaust denials, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is, it is. uh, (laughs) And and they completely brush over the whole uh, Dean Martin breakup. But he did say in relation to his career at Paramount, he did say, look, I worked at Paramount for 13 years or something like that I made. Seventeen films, or maybe it was seven, thirteen films in seventeen years, and he said, "I only ever had a, a handshake. Uh, that was that was our contract was a handshake." So he looked yeah. back with, with great fondness on on that period, and certainly, you know, he was making a ton of money for the for the studio, um, and was given the keys to the kingdom in a sense that he could do periodically whatever he wanted. He he could direct. Yeah. And 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 do what he wanted, and he certainly did so with um, a sense of responsibility toward the money man, toward the yeah. toward the industry in itself. You know, which is of course something that other quote unquote auteurs didn't have. And so I think it was I, I want to say, and I could be wrong, that the relationship he had with Paramount and the industry as a whole was. Was was a good one, but that doesn't answer your question about uh, what the situation was with Dean Martin and 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 that. Oh, and it I don't just know. seemed
1: like such. It, it. I remember. I remember wondering. Oh, this scene seems to have erupted. Yeah. It's like a, there's yeah. it's almost like a Patti Chayevsky scene, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, it's, right? It, and 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 there's and he stands up with such. You know, he bangs the table and he stands up and all, right. of all of a sudden, you know, yeah. all the attention's on him. And he, for a moment, he turns into that, that confused kid. And then they, they walk in, the, the boss walks in, yeah. and he's caught. And to me, and that's he, part and, of And he's, he's cornered into an honest admission of, of right. it's the only yeah. revelation of like the, the soul of this silliness. <laughs> It was a very strange moment.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. I agree. Peter, refresh my memory, because I remember watching that um, uh, Method to the Madness documentary, and I remember being angry about it, and I'm trying to remember why. Was Frank Tashlin even mentioned in that documentary? No, I I think he
4: was mentioned once, and I I oh. literally once because I was I was conscious of that while watching it. It's uh, yeah, it, it was it, it frighteningly one-sided that documentary, and and as you know, as a documentary maker myself, I was kind of embarrassed for the filmmaker. Like, don't you have a perspective here? How can you put your name on this? It's such an obvious slavish devotion to. Um,
1: was it a was it was he Lewis. involved in the in the production or was yeah,
4: yeah he's thing? interviewed throughout and the filmmakers follow I mean, he, him on, on various things he, and he gets an oh, executive well, producer credit at the end so he, he very clearly had his had his his claws on the film which is unfortunate because it does yeah. it does him a disservice as um, uh, you know because you you just question everything because it's so it's 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 so um, devotional you know,
1: and subjective. Yeah. I, I would, you know, you know, someone, I mean, I genuinely do think of him as, a, as when I say Richard Nixon of comedy, when I was a young kid, I mean, I was in front of the <laughs> television all the time. Right. And I used to get Bob Hope and Richard Nixon confused. So I used to, ah. I used to think to myself, I like the Bob Hope, you know, uh, when he's running around and scared all the time, but when he's talking directly to the camera in color, he's kind of scared. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the split that I see if, and it was almost, you know, the way that, you know, Richard Nixon wanted to die having, uh, you know, rehabilitated image somewhat. Yeah. And I kind of feel like this. whatever happened, whatever ugliness happened, uh, between Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, which I don't pretend to know. I've heard so many different things, some of them really ugly and some of them actually quite sweet towards yeah. the end, but but we'll never know. It's not really any of our business, but I, but when I look at films like this, I feel like I almost can't help. I, I'm sure I'm projecting something, but it seems like something's glimmering to the surface about, right. uh, you know, even yes. It's a sketchbook that was meant to be just, uh, you know, a series of comedy sketches. It's what he yeah. wanted to do. He'd been yeah. working really hard. He didn't want to do story, but he wanted, you know, he had available time and Cameron crew and he was a workaholic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you, it, it's funny, art does not permit you to lie in some way or, or to simply make something meaningless.
0: That, right. That's my
1: belief. You can't, and, you I can't mean, even I, draw a line that doesn't, somebody's going to find out something about the line that's yeah. true, you know?
4: I mean, to me, if that's the case, then I would say that this is a film made by somebody who wants to say, I'm not a double act. I'm, I'm oh, it. Okay. I'm everything. I'm not somebody who plays second fiddle or uh, the comic monkey to a straight man. I am my own creature and I am entirely self-sufficient. I think if, if you were to boil the film down to an essential statement, I think that's what the film, that's what the film is saying or that's what the filmmaker is saying about himself.
1: I think that's very well said. I think I I, I think that's. I think that's about as clear an idea as I walked away with when I saw this because I can't say that this film makes me sad. I can't say that it, it's the, my go-to cheer me up film. There are scenes that I like. I'll watch on YouTube, but
5: mm-hmm.
1: it's almost like it's a um, it's happy music, but there's a cello playing under
5: it. Uh, <laughs>
4: you
1: know, that's what it feels right. like. Biz, yeah, you know.
4: And you, of course, would would. I imagine for both of you, there was never a point in your in your childhood when uh, Jerry Lewis didn't exist. Am I right? He was always there.
1: Yes, he was. His biggest presence was uh, probably as the uh, the host of the telethon. Oh, Okay, and right. I think uh, I'm not sure. How old are you, Mike? If you don't mind my asking, it's so awful to ask a question. Uh, I
2: am 45. So grew up in the. Okay, so you're a little younger
1: than I am. I barely remember Nixon. That's the edge of my memory, which means that my comic coming of age of, of, of realizing what comedy was came along with the the anarchists or so called anarchists of like Saturday Night Live and the, the uh the ones who looked at people like Jerry Lewis uh or anybody else who you know did so called professional show business and um made fun of it because Uh it was part of, it was the establishment. These, this was, these were the people who made the, the, their, their parents laugh, and the the parents were the enemy. And, uh, and this, there was like a changing of a guard here. And I I don't know, there were, there were some touching, like, that's, that's why I love King of Comedy so much was Mm -hmm. that there was deference and appreciation shown for what he did. He was allowed to, to cut loose you know, in the same right. sequence. And, yeah. and yeah. yet there were also moments where I thought when he was taped up, the silence, that was another thing I noticed while watching this movie was that was very musical. Or, and most of Jerry Lewis's stuff, with the silences, which are part of music mm. too, but were also created because he was consciously giving the audience time to laugh. I don't remember what the movie is, but there's some movie with Herb Edelman where, or, there's, or Kathleen Freeman or something that, and he actually, the, they just stare at him for such long beats that it's uncomfortable because he's trying to give the audience a chance to, to laugh. But when you watch it on television, it's just bizarre. You know, these silences that uh, I don't know, they're just such a part of it for me. I, I, I can't not think of him in terms of music. And then, if you see that thing in, you know, in Cinderella,
4: yeah, uh, oh, right, and and even the movement that we were talking about in in the scene from the Ladies' Man, you're absolutely right. And and uh, now that I want oh, to see God, the film no. again with this idea in in my head of music, because the bellboy has that little tune that Lewis is
1: always wrong. whistling. My girlfriend said she, did, she she counted out. She said, "I'm not sure I see it in that," but I I I. I I think she was going for a true sort of, you know, bump, 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 bump. It wasn't that it's, it was more of like what he does in cute, which is, you know, it was more of a bebop kind of, thing, which is, uh, and I think once that's in your body, I think it's, I mean, I think a lot of the great comedians and some of them that were just known for rhythms, like Charlie Callis was an amazing drummer who was pure silliness. And, um, Carson, of course, uh, and Craig, uh, just out
4: of curiosity, do you find that after once you recognize that, that you can predict the movements or the, or the, the rhythm that it becomes predictable to you? Uh,
1: uh, no, I'm not, not if it's a real artist. I mean, I think if it's something, uh, it's a hard question to answer. I think I'd have to, I think I, I, I would have to, if it's something that I'm seeing for the first time, no, yeah. you know, uh, I I, I think with some of the more hacky people, um, but I'm thinking of someone who's purely a silent clown. I don't know if you've ever seen his, um, was it, oh, what's his name? He was, was it George, something George. Uh, He he was popular, I think, in the uh, 50s and 60s, and I think he was French, but I'm not sure. But his whole bit was he would get tangled. He'd come out as if he was going to perform a comedy act or sing, he'd have a derby on, it was very yeah. short, and then he would immediately get tangled up in the microphone cord, And his and half his <laughs> act was trying to get untangled from the court. And it was right. so balletic. George Carl. George okay. Carl. Yeah. Who's somebody I'm sh- he was he was supposedly Johnny Carson's favorite act. And I'm sure that um uh I'm sure that Jerry Lewis was aware of him because and if you look him up on YouTube, it's George Carl, K R K I think it's a K A R L George Karl. Okay. I've never heard his. Per- oh my God, he's under. He is a unappreciated champ. <laughs> look if look for his performance on the Tonight Show. All right, it's really beautiful. And uh, uh, but no, I when I I remember seeing something like that, uh, it was completely unpredictable, and that to me is as thrilling as as a, any piece of any piece of art that's mm-hmm. anything. Uh, any beautiful play, drama, comedy, movie. uh, And there were moments when I think Jerry had that, but he had his bag of tricks that, that didn't, they never quite made sense to me. Uh, I know I played with them a lot as kids, you know, where he do, you do a, 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 you know, I know you can picture this where he's listening very intensely and then he goes right to a very confused face and then another, something else catches his attention. And it's, kind of a meaningless series of poses where he's really just trying to make he's pandering. Right. It kind of feels like, but he's pandering with an enormous amount of skill. And, and that, I don't know, it's to answer your question. It's that, I can see that coming, but it makes me laugh because the way he does it is not predictable. I never know when, you know, when the, the, though each expression is going to explode. Uh-huh. I don't think of him in the same class as like a, a chaplain. It's, it, I know it's sacral, it's because I love Jerry and I know people who stand by Jerry and the I really, really, really have a great deal of affection for him. Uh, but I don't see him in the same class as someone like Stan Laurel or Chaplin. Um, who was, oh, there was a great, well, there were, there were so many of that era that, 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 that had been forgotten. Right. But I, I, I I see him as as I think he got trapped by uh, a a system that had become uh, complicated enormously complicated so quickly and uh and personal you know um um I mean, I think he had an enormous lack of uh, of uh, an enormous amount of focus and drive probably to the point of you know near mental illness but but <laughs> Uh, and drove himself probably, you know, to his back pain, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But you know, it it depends. It has to be the right blend. Uh, you know, there were other things that uh, broke, probably got into the mix. You know, uh, areas where I would have liked to, if there was a little bit more discipline, or or he was able to take in somebody else's direction. What might have happened had he really become a clean? comedian with a bit more of a classical bent and then he could come back and express himself as freely yeah but he really never let go of that nine-year-old that explosion of you know three or four expressions and so when he did that talk show in the 80s it was funny for the wrong reasons I felt Mm -hmm. uh and uh anyway that's my I'll wrap it up there I don't I don't want to crap on him because I I just I I just think he's I've got so much affection for him and he just truly makes me laugh. I mean, uh, but um, I do, when I watched this movie this time, there was something sad about it because I saw a young guy who, if he had studied with, if he had truly studied and become a student, I think could have been one of the, he, I guess he is one of the greats, but would have been almost godlike.
4: I, I, Andrew Sarris said, he was critiquing the French critics, and he said they've mistaken uh, talent for genius. And I, I, think, I think he's right you know, when it comes to Lewis. Yeah, he was yeah. talented, extremely talented. He was no genius. But well, he potential. yeah, he adopted the responsibility of a genius by, by being the writer, the, the director, the producer. Uh, he, he adopted that mantra. And I don't think he had what it takes to pull it off. And, and I'm not exactly sure what it, what it takes to pull it off. Chaplin had it. That's for sure. Uh, and I don't think Lewis I, had it. Well, yeah. didn't
1: Chaplin have, he was, Chaplin was, um, well, they both had years and years on stage, but Chaplin's the work that Chaplin did on stage was far more varied. I think, you know, the, the, the discipline, yeah. whatever he and Dean it's were true. doing, it was, it was out of the moment. And it was, Yeah. I guess it had its kind of genius and, well, and it, it was kind of a punk rock appeal that, we, you know, not seeing it live. Like I I'd give anything to be of the era and see the Marx brothers alive. What that must have been like a jet plane landing on stage. I mean yeah. it must have just been incredible. Yeah.
4: Chaplin is that first generation of vaudevillians or music hall performers to, to come into cinema. Lewis is the last. Yeah. Uh, and right. and it's debatable even whether he was a vaudeville comedian. He was Bosch Belt, uh, lounge club, yes. you know, he had that yeah, one act.
1: The the record stuff.
4: The, yeah, exactly. Which you know, so he comes in at the end of that of that whole glorious era of the vaudeville and that physical comedy. Um, and
1: think of what was the movie that that Charlie Chaplin uh, roller skated? Oh, that's Modern uh, Times. Yeah. Modern Times. Yeah. And comes so close to the edge. You know, oh, there was never a moment right. where Charlie Chaplin, where uh, Jerry Lewis. You know, uh, did something that was death-defyingly funny.
5: Yeah, but other I than think...
1: probably hurt his back, you know, falling. But uh, you know, and but I, I, I just thought the level of skill. There's no, there's no comparison, right? Really, yeah. Uh, and some laps, are, they're they were they equivalent of, I can't think of a better term, but they're physical dick laps. They're just easier laps, and they're predictable and. Mm-hmm. He's he's has a legacy, you know. I think Jim carries a le- more of a legacy of Jerry Lewis than Charlie Chaplin.
4: Sure. Yeah, and, absolutely.
1: Uh, yeah. That's too bad that there aren't legacies. I can't think of one legacy of Charlie Chaplin. Can you guys? I can't think of one person who does that now.
4: You know, I mean, uh, there was it, there was Tati, but uh, no, nobody since. No, absolutely
2: not. No. Yeah, and I would say Jackie yeah. Chan was more a student of Buster Keaton. than yes. Ch- Charlie Chaplin.
4: Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. And these were, these were, these were dancers. These were ballet dancers. These yeah. were precision diamond cutting perfectionists. I just think they were visionaries. And I'm not saying that Jerry was, there wasn't, because I do think there was something that he saw. And I do think that he loved comedy. And like i said, I'm, I'm, I'm an inveterate lover of the guy, uh, <laughs> Also, you know what I found was really touching? Uh, I, I used to be one of the people who would make fun of, you know, the idea of the day that the clown cried. But I, then I saw footage of somebody. Did you see this? Right. Footage it came of somebody, out. Yeah, it came well, out a few they, years footage, ago, right? They, yes, a few years ago they released some yeah. footage. but But somebody at a festival actually asked him and said... Why, when will you ever release all your fans who love you so much? All we are is curious. We love you. And he said, I will answer this question and I've never answered it before because I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. This was not a bad comedy about a company that is in trouble. This was a bad comedy about the worst blackest moment in history. And I missed and we have to be allowed to miss And, and you don't have to share uh, a bad record. You don't have to release it and you shouldn't have to release a bad movie. And what I did was bad. Yeah. And it was the most nakedly honest. And this was recently that I can't, there's, it's very hard to, you know, be ironic about that, that, that part of Jerry, that would be, you know, very self-important and because, uh, there were that there was something about that that seemed it was so straight from the heart and in the moment and so full of pain and remorse yeah. that he had to finally let it out and um, mm. I deeply touched by it. Yeah, I am deeply touched by it and and I can't. I I discovered while I was watching this film, I I can't just watch a Jerry Lewis movie anymore. It's like I I, I and for very different reasons I can't just listen to Bill Cosby anymore.
5: <laughs> Yeah. You know,
1: stuff that I, that was funny like no one else was ever funny and I've been denied something. This wasn't anybody's fault. It's just this is more about somebody being so psychologically fascinating to me, yeah. Jerry Lewis, um, that it's hard to, you know, separate it from all of his comedy rather than somebody who did something potentially if, if he did, the, you know, unspeakable.
4: I, I think it's important to say, I've been somewhat negative in my comments about the film, but I, I think it's, it's important to say that, uh, you know, th- it's easy to poo-poo the, 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 the French fascination and the, uh, the, the, the acclaim that the Cahiers du Cinema people and, and the positive yeah. people gave to Lewis. It's easy to dismiss that. But um, you know there was a reason for it. And if you look at the 50s and if you look at the 60s, which is when Lewis was, was predominant in American cinema, there is no rival. You know, from the year that Chaplin was denied re entry into America, which was 1952, yes. until the yep. emergence of Mel Brooks and Woody Allen in the late 1960s, right. there That's is right. nobody in American cinema with that level of authority and, and power uh, in, in comedy than Jerry Lewis. Uh, so That's he right. was unique for two whole decades. He filled that wasteland. And it, it, for, it's not
1: something that can be ignored and it uh, has to be no. celebrated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I felt this film was part of it. It might not be the, it might not have been his, you know, it might not have been the, the marble statue that I would have chosen. There right. are other ones. I. But, uh, but, um, boy, there's some moments in this that are yeah. just fantastic. And to me, none
4: uh, of the some film. I think I
1: confused with the errand boy. That's why I thought, I was waiting for some movements that I had, right. I had that are in the errand boy, but, um, yeah. but, um,
4: to to me none of the to me the films are all fatally flawed but the, there are moments of just beauty and genius uh yeah. In 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 so many in so the errand boy and the Patsy the ladies man the nutty professor of course and those moments alone are frequently worth more certainly worth more than the films themselves and worth more than I would say the careers of many other um, filmmakers so for that alone I, I I think he's he's important and and uh, and deserves the
1: uh, very well said the very kudos well said. and that there are, there is also. You know, when you're talking about an artist compared to, and it's impossible because now what the media has become that 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 they there's an enmeshment with their uh, with the facts of their life, you know, right. the, the yeah. complications of their life, yeah. and, and yeah. Co- it has no place in comedy, especially if someone who's trying to cultivate an image right. that is uh, child friendly, family friendly. Uh, it, 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 that was never more clear to me. Uh, then when you know what happened uh, with uh, Michael Richards a few years ago, and somebody caught that that explosion of his uh, where he was yelling you know racist epithets and, and, and a live audience, and it was you know unfortunate that that was when you know cell phone cameras were becoming prevalent. But the fact of the matter is, the first thing I thought was. Uh, and maybe it's just because I have some experience, uh, watching people who I know are gifted, funny comedians. And there isn't one of them that I know of who they may be very nice people, but there's something in them that has jet fuel. And it's usually very angry. You don't have Kramer doesn't make those entrances in Seinfeld. Uh, that's that, that kind of fuel comes from somewhere. Yeah, that kind of torque behind the comedy comes from somewhere and I'm sure whatever it is that, 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 that turbo force that has been behind Jerry Lewis all these years, there's something there that is, must be very, it always touched me. I always just, even as a child figured boy, something, there's a pain that he's communicating to me that I can't, I'm too young to articulate or understand, but he's articulating it as a child. So I Mm. feel. I almost feel like I have a friend like an imaginary friend and then as I grew up it remained touching to me that he held on to that I I would imagine it's something between him and his dad that would be my guess but it could be a bunch of other things just being screwed around by a changing business people the, the industry the leaders of the industry were getting younger and he was aging and they were his boss it must have been very difficult
4: his parents had essentially abandoned him as a child. He was raised by his grandparents. His parents were vaudeville performers or uh, nightclub performers. And so they left oh, him. I, and I, he I think he
1: traveled with them. Maybe that was part of, maybe that was uh, of the myth that he drew.
4: I think he, yeah, I, I, on one or two occasions perhaps, but he was, he was raised by his, his grandmother. So I think yeah, there, yeah. there's, there's probably something there, some resentment.
1: some oh, anger, yeah. And you just, yeah. you don't get past that. You just keep working on right. it. Right.
2: We're going to take a break and play an interview with author Sean Levy, author of King of Comedy, The Life and Art of Jerry Lewis, right after these brief messages.
1: Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick (laughs) thing to come again. Not racist at all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I not have sex with that horse. <laughs> we'll make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at Badass's Boobs and Hey fans,
3: this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films. Any cult film. Every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother in law's a cult member. <laughs> Tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out.
0: It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the 7-Hour Conan episode, the 6-Hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's PATREON.com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's Patreon.com/slash/projectionbooth. Donate today; it's the right thing to do.
1: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com, and you are listening to my favorite, the number one. The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky
2: son of a gun. The Bellboy, to me, marks a pretty big event for Jerry Lewis in that this was his first time behind the camera, or at least his first feature. That's
6: correct. In fact, it's the first feature um, in which a comedian who debuted in talking films directed himself. We had Chaplin and Keaton and Harold Lloyd and people like that uh, who, who were silent comedians who directed themselves in the silent era. But, um, you know, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, those guys never directed their own, their own work. Jerry was the first guy to make that leap, and now, of course, it's pretty common.
2: He was so busy during so much of his career, but looking at 1959, 1960, it looks like he was working constantly.
6: Yeah, he, he was, he was a true dynamo. I mean, he was on TV doing, um, specials and, you know, he, 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 except for the telethons he did on Labor Day weekend, he never really had a success on television, but he kept trying. He had a Timex series in the late fifties, which was something like 12 shows a year. He did a made for TV, uh, film of the jazz singer. Um, a remake of the Al Jolson film with, uh, uh, instead of being a singer, he was a clown. He did two films a year for Paramount. He performed regularly in Las Vegas and Miami and some other places. Um, and uh, even in the late 50s, years before the telephones began, he was doing charity work most days and raising six kids. And uh, he, he, was, he was nuts. Was directing
2: something that he had wanted to pursue for a long time? During
6: the uh, Martin and Lewis years, he had taken a very strong hand in um, overseeing half of their films. Um, The way their contract with Paramount worked, every other film was a Martin and Lewis production. The other films were produced by Hal Wallace for Paramount Pictures. And on the films that were the Martin and Lewis films... Jerry took a very strong hand in the script and in producing, and he could be slightly overbearing, um, to his directors. And he was also, you know, he was a tinkerer in life. He, he liked to play with things. Um, he owned a camera store at one point. His house was filled with gadgets. He, you know, he was a young man when he got into movies. He was like 20, 22 years old. Um, and he, he, he liked to, Ask a lot of questions, learn how things work, um, learn, you know, learn what the grips did, learn how the camera worked. So he, whether he was doing it consciously or not, he was actually assembling the tools that a film director would need. How did The Bellboy come about? Jerry's story is that you know he had two films in the can, or at least one in the can, and one that was in pro- post-production. And he could have supplied Paramount with their 1960 quota. And it would have been fine, but he had this idea to do a quick little film, and um, he told Paramount he would do that. And they said, "Well, we're not going to finance a film that you write, direct, produce, star in. That's that's not for us." So he he offered to put up his own money. About I think it was about a million and a half dollars in the end. He went off to Miami with a co-writer of. Uh, guy by the name of bill richmond who who worked on many of his solo films with him including the you know the most famous uh, the nutty professor um and they they put together a basically it's it's not a film narrative it's a series of sketches comic sketches there's probably 30 or 40 of them make up the film which is only about 75 minutes long and they shot with Miami at that time was an East Coast rival for Las Vegas in terms of, you know, the strip of hotels in uh, Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami Beach area. You know, the Fountain Blue Hotel, the Eden Rock, the great old resorts uh, brought in live entertainers on the caliber of Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Sammy Davis Jr. So there was a lot of lesser talent always in town that Jerry knew he could hire. And, um, it had also become the, uh, the sort of winter performance, um, mecca for Borschtbelt entertainers. And Jerry grew up as a young Borschtbelt comic. His father was a Borschtbelt singer in Al Jolson vein. So he had all this talent available to him. And he shot the film in about four, six weeks and assembled it very quickly. And it was out in the same year. I don't know if I wrote about this in, in, in my book, but, Since then, I've come to believe that Jerry also, um, was caught on the sidelines when the Rat Pack were in Las Vegas shooting Oceans 11, which had begun earlier, a couple months earlier. And I believe Jerry deliberately threw his own Rat Pack Summit of One in Miami and, um, made this film sort of as a, as a way to feel whether connected to or competitive with or, in the same league with, you know, his former partner, Dean Martin and Sinatra and all those guys. So there is a, there is a true business story that he, he thought he could turn a film around real fast and, and, you know, and, and it was very profitable for him because Paramount didn't produce it. Jerry was the producer and he, he made millions on this film. But also I think there was this psychological thing that he had to, that he had to show he was, he was on a par with those other guys. The opening
2: with that intro by Jack
6: Emulsion, was that kind of tacked on later on? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you look at this film, it's 1960. It's a black and white film. Jerry's films at this point in his career are all in color. Um, it's got a main character who doesn't speak. It's got no plot, whatever. It's just a series of events, mostly regarding this guy. There's two or three that don't involve him. There's two or three um, performances of, of uh, you know, nightclub entertainers, and there was really no explanation for for um, an, an audience of 1960, particularly a Jerry Lewis audience, which skewed toward you know, the sort of um, TV watching family crowd of that era. Far from prime TV, we can think of it as yeah. you know a, a film unlike anything that had been seen since the silent era. So they did this kind of ridiculous thing where they have a fake movie executive introduce the film explaining what, what they're about to see to the audience. And, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's obvious what you're seeing and this is not needed, but at the time they thought that that make the thing slightly more intelligible. Of course it's, it's, it's tackier. Jerry, Jerry is not at his best when he's, um, explaining himself and that that comes to close to a bit of him explaining himself
2: he's famously played multiple roles over the years was this one of the first times that he played two roles in one movie
6: there are movies in the martin lewis years and 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 in the jerry years where he um he plays a character who goes into a disguise so he's playing two roles in that regard um but th- in this film he's playing two different human beings he plays Stanley the bellboy and then in a brief one of the episodes involves the arrival at the fountain blue hotel of the movie star Jerry Lewis and we'd almost have to put that like in in single and double quotation marks at once because Jerry Lewis is of course a stage name um his real name is Jerry Levitch for some reason he insists that it's Joseph Levitch, but I have his birth certificate. And the family may have called him Joey, but his birth certificate says Jerome. So so Jerry Lewis is a persona. The, 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 the man we talk about as Jerry Lewis is, is not the same guy who's sitting in Las Vegas today, 91 years old, you know, watching CNN and shaking a fist or whatever he's doing that's a human being. Then there's this character who we think we know who's the man that's not on the screen. Then there's the guy on the screen. And then there's the guy on the screen playing himself as the guy on the screen. It's, it's like a hall of mirrors. And even in, even in the credits of the bellboy, the actor playing the quote unquote part of Jerry Lewis is credited as Joe Levitch. So you know this idea of doubling over, of not being who you really are, of being more than one person in one body. That runs not only throughout his movies, but I think it's also part of his life. I think if you go around as he did for decades, acting like a a, a squealing child, you're very conscious that you 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 must have a public persona where you're an adult, virile, intelligent, masculine man. So he always has that, I think, somewhere in his head that that um, he, he must be off-camera the opposite of what he so often was on-camera.
2: How was the film received when it came
6: out? The trade reviews, um, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, Motion Picture, Herald, were pretty devastating. Um, they didn't like Jerry at all. It was very rare for him to get a good review in the trades. And Jerry was very sensitive to that. Um, his, uh, papers, his business and production papers are at USC. I used them extensively in writing about him. And he kept files on everything, including every review. He had a clipping service and if he got a review in a, in a paper in Bangor, Maine, it, it showed up in, in, in his files. Those first reviews were negative, but the film was extremely popular. Again, it was a low budget film and Derry was the sole um, financial backer. So he, he, he recouped a huge sum of money. And in the main, I think some of the, 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 mainstream reviews were, were positive. They saw he, you remember he was doing something new. He had never played a character like this before. Stanley doesn't talk. He doesn't do the, Hey lady voice, you know, he, he's, he's, um, much more like a chaplain or a stan laurel character than than he is like a jerry lewis character and a few of the critics at the time i think noticed that and thought oh this is an interesting direction that he's taking you know whether i like this film much or not i i respect him for for at the height you know at this height of popularity that he he currently enjoys trying something new speaking of stan laurel it, they were friends right they knew one another. You know, Stan Laurel apparently was um, close to Dick Van Dyke in the late 50s. And uh, Dick Van Dyke introduced Jerry and Stan Laurel. And, and Jerry um, went to Stan's house a few times and, and um, you know, tried to get him. And I believe he offered him a job um, as, as just a comedic consultant to Jerry Lewis Pictures or Productions. And and Laurel declined; he was in poor health. he didn't live much longer past uh past when he and Jerry met, but they I, you know they, they they were guys who worked in the same field, and uh, I think they had mutual respect and I know that Jerry had a great great affection and admiration for Stan Laurel. I just think they met so late in Stan's life that um they, you know they they didn't hang out and barbecue hot dogs together or any of that stuff, but they they did have a couple of meetings and share share some regard for one another.
2: You said that he wrote this with Bill Richmond, but I don't think he gets a credit. Do you know why that might be?
6: You know, these things can get disputed um by the Writers Guild. I don't believe this one went to arbitration. Bill was an employee of Jerry's for many years and um it could very well be that Bill's uh contract called for Jerry to get screenwriting credit. It might be that you know, in fact Jerry did the lion's share of, of the of of the uh writing. I suspect the the real reason is that as an employee of Jerry's Bill was just along for it and you know in 1960 I think people were a little more naive about this and Bill uh was not a writer when they met he was a jazz drummer um and he just had this comic sensibility and he and Jerry hit it off uh, they must have met at some live gig or something or at a party you know, he was with him for a long time, he, even in late. I, I think Bill might have had a hand in cracking up and hardly working the last the last films Jerry directed in the early 80s. Um, he was certainly in the orbit of Jerry later than that. You know, I suspect Jerry, Jerry wanted the, the straight writer, producer, director, star credit. But I think also that there was a contract involved and Bill was paid handsomely to not be credited.
2: It follows that he does The Ladies Man, The Aaron Boy, Nutty Professor. So, you know, he's directing himself for quite a few films after that. But then he starts going back to working with Frank Tashlin. And I'm curious how that relationship was, especially after Jerry starts directing himself.
6: Tashlin was Jerry's um, mentor in many ways as a director, um, teaching him about visual style, teaching him about being a comic auteur in the studio system and standing up to you know, the Hal Wallaces and wife Frank Freemans and Barney Balabans, the the studio bosses of the world. And Jerry learned a lot from them. Um, In fact, the film that Jerry was supposed to release at the time The Bellboy came out, Cinderfella, was a Frank Tashlin film. But the two quarreled on that set. They maintained a friendship, and I believe they made a couple of pictures after Cinderfella. But, you know, prior to that, Tashlin was directing just about every other Jerry Lewis or, or Martin Lewis film from about 54 to 60. Um, so, you know, perhaps a half dozen or eight films together. And, you know, once Jerry had learned what he wanted to do um, from Tashlin, um, I think he, he, he didn't need him as much. And the pictures that he owed Paramount, um, Paramount was not crazy for Tashlin, who they found to be temperamental and, you know, fussy. So um, they didn't necessarily assign him. So if Jerry was going to do two pictures a year and he was going to direct one, that left Tashlin sort of uh, out of a loop. I'm curious, what is your favorite Jerry Lewis film, whether he was directing or just starring in it? We're talking about Tashlin. I I love Artists and Models with Dee and Jerry. There are a couple of Martin and Lewis films that I think are really good. Uh, The Stooge, um, That's My Boy. Uh, Never too young. Two on films, Hollywood Robust and Artists and Models. For Jerry solo films, it's really it's 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 exactly the pictures you know that w- that we're talking about. Uh, Bellboy and Errand Boy and Ladies Man and Nutty Professor. The first four films he directs are honestly as good as any four features that any comedian has directed since the talking era began. You know, a, a comic actor directing himself. Um, they're they're really it's it's quite a body of work and it represents you know barely four years of of of, of his time during which he was doing many of the things we mentioned earlier you know making Paramount Pictures making TV shows live appearances et cetera. I'm also I have a soft spot for a film that's probably an unmitigated disaster but for me it's very interesting called Which Way to the Front in um, which Jerry is a businessman. Uh, during World War II, who tries to organize a, a group of uh, misfits who are going to go and murder Hitler. There's actually scenes of Hitler, you know, in his, in his bunker or in his palace in Berlin, um, played by the father of the actor Rob Morrow. And um it's, it's, it's a crazy movie. It's made in like 1969 or 70. You can't imagine anything, you know, so nuts. He's clearly riffing off of you know, Mel Brooks and springtime for Hitler and the producers, but you know, he's, he, he's actually making springtime for Hitler. He's not making a movie about the making of springtime for Hitler. Um, it's, it's crazy, but, but I'm fascinated by it. I've seen it a couple of times.
2: It's gotta be tough to kind of divorce yourself from a subject after a book about that subject comes out. How immersed in Jerry Lewis news are you still to this day?
6: Immersed, no, but cognizant. Um, you know, I do have a Google alert set for um, the phrases Jerry Lewis and Las Vegas, so that uh, I, I catch a lot of news about him when it happens. There's not a month—I was going to say a week—but it's more like a month goes by when you know I, I get some. Someone throws me a piece of information or says, "Hey, have you seen this?" Just the other day, um, somebody writing about Twin Peaks episode twelve. And uh how the the seed, the, the comic bits and the, the and the weird bits just go on and on and on and on, and you're waiting for a break in it compared it to Jerry Lewis. And that's true. One of Jerry's comic riffs is that he will let the thing become excruciatingly long and you become physically uncomfortable. and And one of the great insights of the French critics who who venerated Jerry in the 60s was that his comedy was about discomfort. And he had found ways in the cinema to make you uncomfortable. Um, that's a very sophisticated perspective because most of us think this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. So to sit there and say, this makes me uncomfortable. How ingenious is, is, is a, is a real different uh, mentality. So, you know, someone sent me the, the 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 a link to this article comparing David Lynch to Jerry Lewis. So, so whether I want to uh be rid of him or not, he's 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 always on the horizon.
2: Are there any plans on uh revising King of Comedy?
6: You know, I thought that that was a thing to do, but um I was assured by my agent and people in publishing in New York that that is not a thing to do. Um I, you know, the book the book leaves off 20 years ago at this point, 21 years ago, the last thing in it is the revival of Dan Yankees when he toured the U.S. And, you know, his work since then, I mean, he's 91 now, so his 70s and 80s weren't filled with work. Most of a, 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 another chapter or two would be taken up with incidents of, you know, health scares or um, him saying something awful and then, you know, doubling down on it. <laughs> you know, so. You know he, uh, the the life he's lived. Uh, he he uh, there was a film he made last year, uh, several years ago, and got released last year called Max Rose, about um a widower who suspects that his after his wife's gone, he begins to realize that she had had an affair early in their marriage, and you know I watched it and it it, would, it just wasn't very good, you know, and um I, I'm in retrospect, I'm grateful that that book got to end when Jerry was at something of a high, when he was touring the country in Damn Yankees. He played 180 or something performances on Broadway. And at the time, he was by weekly salary, you know, in terms of the weekly salary, he was the highest paid performer in the history of Broadway. And that's almost 50 years into his career. So, you know, uh, that, that was a fortunate place for the book to end. And, it only got released as an ebook last year for the first time. When we published the thing, there were no ebooks. So there was no uh, no stipulation in the contract that it could be in, in, in that format. So it's finally available for your, your Kindle or your dental implant or however you read your ebooks.
2: Since last time we talked, you published uh, Dolce Vita Confidential. How
6: did that project come about? Oh, uh, that was a project that probably I had in mind when I was working on Jerry Lewis. Um, Cellini is absolutely one of my favorite people in the cinema and Rome is one of my favorite places in the world. And, um, I've always been drawn to the pop culture of the fifties. And here was this place where everything was going on. Movies, fashion, the birth of the paparazzi, the one of the last, um, eras of of the great old high life um you know after 1956 and especially after 1964 youth culture begins to dominate um you know in in popular culture but prior to that it was grown up culture and you know the via Veneto in rome in in the 1950s was one of these impossibly chic and glamorous places, sort of like uh, Sunset Boulevard in the '30s, or places like you know 52nd Street in New York in the '50s, and I wanted to do it again and again and again. And every time I, I proposed it, people were like, nah, nah, I don't know what that is. We don't, you know, we don't know how to sell a book like that. And finally, I just did it. I probably gathered string on it for about 20 years. Got to spend a month in Rome doing research, literally doing research uh, every day. Except for the days I went to watch soccer, <laughs> you know. And even then, you know, you you if you're going to write about a city where you don't live, any time you take a walk, you're doing some research. You know, you begin to think, oh, this is where that cafe was, where that happened, and that direction is where the guy's office was. So he would have known this. And then you begin to see, you know, you draw a map in your head that's different from the map in your pocket that yeah it was a dream project and what are you working on these days i am working on a history of chateau marmont the hotel on sunset strip where john belushi died it was built in the 1920s um it's always been sort of like the the bohemian hotel of hollywood the chelsea hotel of hollywood if you will and it's uh It's got a history that includes James Dean and Gene Harlow and Roman Polanski and Lindsay Lohan. I mean, it's decades of of history. It's right on the Sunset Strip. It's um, it's a way to look at you know the changing mores of our culture and of Hollywood through the basically the biography of a building.
2: Yeah, I just spoke to somebody who wrote a book about the Plaza Hotel. Yeah, and
6: the, the Yeah, that's that. a good one. This wasn't my idea. All of my ideas got got canned last year, um, and uh, this publisher, taking pity on me, said, "We've been kicking around something you'd be good at." And as soon as I heard it, it was like one of those uh, Japanese paper flowers that you drop in the water and it just blossoms. And I saw the whole book immediately, and and uh, we 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 were able to uh, cut a deal and get a get, get a publishing contract. But when I was thinking that, I was like, hey, writing biographies of, of famous hotels would be cool. <laughs> I sort of went on Amazon. I was like, Beverly Hills Hotel, been done. Plaza Hotel, been done. Chelsea Hotel, been done. I was like, darn it, this is like the last one. It's an interesting thing that, you know, the building stays in one place, and the people who come in and out of it and the culture that happens around it is the the story of a century. But the building is always the same. We talk about character development or, or, you know, in biography, you know, you follow the, the the life and the changes in life of a person. Well, this this building is, it has no emotions and doesn't change. It's, it's sort of like the opposite of, of a biography in that way.
2: Is the best place for people to find out more about you and your work at your website, SeanLevy.com?
6: Yeah, I haven't updated that thing in some time, unfortunately. I, I, I've i kind of burned out on on a lot of types of... Uh, Social media, but you know all, all the books are on Amazon um, I tweet at, at sean levy um if you are uh leery of profanity or or particularly enamored of this president, you might not enjoy that Twitter stream, but you know uh, my my stuff is out there,
2: Mr. Levy, thank you so much for your time today. Oh no, thank you. All right, we are back, and we were talking about the bellboy. So, Craig, you brought up Jacques Tati before, and we also talked about uh, why do the French love Jerry Lewis. I think one of the reasons why the French love Jerry Lewis is because he was kind of doing what the French were doing uh, with yeah. Tati. And then also, you know, we, we mentioned Frank Tashlin earlier. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Jerry owes everything to Frank Tashlin. I will say that Frank Tashlin, to me— was a very influential director on Jerry and his career, especially as a solo artist and as a director. And Tashlin had come from cartoons, and a lot of his live-action stuff was very cartoonish. And we talked about how the Bellboy is very cartoonish. So I definitely see, to me, it's kind of a combination of Tati and Tashlin, really kind of informing Lewis when it comes to his directorial efforts and and the characters that he's creating. And then I was really glad, uh, Peter, thank you so much for turning me on to Pierre I had never experienced his work before. And Yo-Yo, if there's one movie that I'm going to go back and rewatch now, it is Yo-Yo was just amazing. Wonderful. This movie, it was what, 65 it came out, as opposed to The Bellboy, which was 60. So it's it's almost like a retroactive influence. It felt very much like it was, it was uh, informing uh, the bellboy, even though it was later. But right. God, just a brilliant, yeah. brilliant film.
4: And the story of, uh, if I'm getting it correctly, I hope I am, that Lewis goes to France in the mid '60s to open. One of his films, and he says to whatever hand he has there, to uh, show me a, a French film. I want to see some contemporary French comedy. Who's this guy Ferdinand? I've heard so much about in the and the aide said, well, Ferdinand is, is very he's very um, parochial. I don't think you'll get him. But there is this guy Pierre Tex. You should you should check out uh, his new film Yo Yo. And Lewis went along and saw it and said uh, to his aide, I, I need to get a hold of of this guy. Tex is wow. working on his next film, his follow-up film, and he's getting these calls. Somebody wants to speak to you. And eventually he says, OK, put, put him on the line. And uh, he says hello. And on the other end of the line, he hears...
5: <laughs> and
4: that was Lewis applauding uh, Atex, and the two became great friends. And Atex uh, has a role in The Day the Clown Cried, which, of course, we haven't seen yet. Um, what, we,
1: but, what is his name? I, I'm going to look for the movie. I've never heard of this, but I'll P- going to look for it. What P-
4: Pierre Atex. Um, Atex. Yeah, and it should be a A-t-a. Te. Yeah, that's why I'm saying a
2: because that's what it looks like.
4: And it it it. But he pronounces it a text. And um, the Criterion um, have a wonderful box set of all his films, and they're really oh, yeah, they're they're very unique. I, I don't I don't he he worked with uh, Tati as a as a gag writer, and he actually some of Tati's iconic posters were drawn uh, by a so this guy is very much in that Tati um, and mold, oh, okay. and uh, you can see that connection. Yeah, Lewis is not—he's not imitating these French guys, but he's certainly in that in that same in that same mold. And it's I think
1: in, in it, some of his later color films, it's a little bit more apparent that that's sort of modern. If this is what you were alluding to, I might be way off, but that kind of that very modern, uh, uh, symmetrically balanced. Yeah shot
4: right and you you put yeah. your finger on it when you were talking about the sequence with the chairs and that wonderful composition the wide angle Yeah, it's
1: very pure tati- The closest thing to tatia yeah tati- yeah 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 oh you make me want to seek i'm gonna I'm gonna seek this movie out is it is this hard to find Yo-yo how does one go about doing that? I can find it. Okay, great.
2: No, it's it's out on Criterion, so it's out there. And I was so happy great. to see that Jean Claude Carrier wrote uh, co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, and we've talked about so many Carrier films on this podcast. It's just amazing. The guy had done, has done. He's still with us. Has done so many amazing things. I'm working with Buñuel, so you've got that that injection of the surrealism that we talked about when it comes to the way that some of these jokes play out. And I like that the way that Yo Yo character why well, I like that he plays his own father and yeah uh, and uh just that his his gags and that he is actually calling these things gags and that he has <laughs> that book that we're talking about that Jerry Lewis probably has a book of gags and here we have Yo Yo right. book of gags was terrific. Yeah. And just to see all those little things. The physical comedy, the comedy of manners, the comedy uh the sight gags, so many great sight yeah. gags. And then even the physical comedy, the when he uh, is up on top of his mobile home and hits a, a oh, tree... The tree. And drops into the hay wagon, and then the hay wagon catches up with his own home, and he gets back into it. So
1: good! I was just like, "This is Buster Keaton all over again." It's Buster Keaton, and yet very Buster Keaton.
4: But like Keaton, he downplays it. It's deadpan; the delivery is deadpan. Whereas Lewis would have, you know, milked it for every facial expression possible. A text just plays it straight, and. Um, but you know they're both part of the same uh, the, that same lovely transi- um, uh, tradition of pantomime comedy and pantomime performance in the sound medium. And after Chaplin, you know, there were very few people who followed that that tradition. Uh, Tati, Atex and 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 Lewis in America, and I don't think there's. You know, people always talk about that dreadful Mel Brooks film, silent movie. It's horrible, yeah. and that yeah. other, um, oh, the French film that was equally, oh, hard. These people did oh, not understand silent that. cinema, it, but uh, Lewis did, I think, and he captured
1: that. Somebody pulled that off, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, but that but you
4: you can't because you need performers schooled in vaudeville in that old style yeah. of performance and they don't have yeah. that heritage and lewis was the last to, to to enter american cinema from that background and i think that that's what makes him special and 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 important because who do you get after that you get mel brooks and you get woody allen all right. these verbal TV and they're train getting guys. and they're
1: already it's getting it's meta it's they're making yeah. fun of yeah
4: right it's a joke
1: so who do you, I'd be interested, um, you guys, obviously, you know so much. Who is it, if it's not in the, even not in the medium of film, who is it that when you need to laugh that you go to nowadays, who is a contemporary, that who isn't, uh, you know, a monument? I mean, the obvious monuments, you know, who is there anybody who is alive and working and in, in the midst of their career now that you will go to? and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a film person it be a tv person or a, or even a storyteller even a writer i suppose but uh, where do you go for laughs that are new well i would
4: say tv i would say it's um what's his name seinfeld guy the hbo larry, larry david. david larry david it's the yes. larry yes. david show um yes. it's that style of of comedy
2: yeah, for mike me, mike hugo it comes to physical comedy along these lines where you can have things kind of transcending language and just mm-hmm. great psych gags. And again, to the point of almost living cartoons, I would go with Stephen Chow's work. I really appreciate some of the things that he's oh. done, like Shaolin soccer, uh, Kung Fu hustle. I mean, Kung Fu hustle. There's a scene in there that is, a direct homage to the Road Runner and Coyote uh,
5: cartoons. <laughs> yeah,
2: and then in Shell and Soccer, there's so many great sight gags, a uh, God of Cookery, so many wonderful things. And uh, for you know, for a long time, it was Jackie Chan where you could go yeah. for the yeah. physical comedy plus the thrills and just to see him with right. these amazing stunts that he mm-hmm. was doing. And yeah. so much of it was, of course, he's speaking Cantonese at the time, but. I'm watching the movies with really shitty English subtitles and I can understand everything that's going on because he was such a great physical performer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But there really isn't anybody even close to this now. And you know, it's not like I know they don't have vaudeville, but they, they have people who spend their life in clown school, you know, and yeah. work the streets. And I, I, I wonder if, if we'll ever have that again, it's, it's a, it's 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 very sad because I I love nothing more than great comedy and it just doesn't you know yeah. we have to look to the past
4: you know I I agree and and I I couldn't immediately answer your question because I mostly go to the past I still go and I watch Keaton and yeah. Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy and the other night I watched um, I've forgotten how funny it was uh, Man with Two Brains
1: Oh yeah Oh Jesus oh, yeah. God that is There were great moments. The Zucker brothers were great a great yeah, where they just vent yeah. things you know and Monty right. Python where they just bend Monty
2: Python. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, That's but, where they mix that surrealism with the higher art again <laughs> where it's just oh, so, so many amazing yeah. things. Just yeah. Why would this happen but it's fantastic? Why is Pablo Picasso doing a cycling tour of London and right. at the same time? <laughs> yeah. You never even daredevil. see it. The you the never even
1: see it but uh, you have I it know. in your
5: head. It's oh. just, the daredevil
1: he who tries to jump the Channel and he's being sponsored by a brick company. So carry. <laughs> that was the first Python sketch I've ever. That that was life. Uh,
4: I'm teaching a, a high school film program, and just the other night, I screened Life of Brian. And oh. they just adored it, you know. And then the next day, you know, is is the to me the comparable American film, uh, modern, reasonably modern comedy, great American comedy, is Blazing Saddles, and that's it. Life of oh, and Blazing Saddles uh, are are just, you know,
1: do you, do you do you not put a Young Frankenstein up there too? Or I've ever liked. You I've never really liked Young
4: Frankenstein. I have to say, that right. And I, I, most of Mel Brooks stuff, is films, that I don't, I don't really like. But Blaise I wonder if just—is it possible that's cultural? Do you think it might be? Uh, wonder, it might. I, I uh, it, you know, I, I never particularly like Young Frankenstein. I love the producers, yeah. the producers, and. The producers Blaise, Everything and I haven't
2: seen Twelve
1: distance. Chairs yet. I, I've never seen, but I don't know why I've really avoided
2: Twelve Chairs for some right. reason. When I saw it when I was a kid, I loved it. I yeah. haven't gone back to it.
1: Oh, okay. I'm going to go yeah. back to it and report back to you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah.
4: Yeah. I have it here somewhere on Blu ray. it's part of that Mel Brooks
2: collection, I think. And you know, those early Woody Allen films relied on oh, a lot of psych comedy, like take the money and oh, run. Yeah. Take the money and run. Um and I
1: loved he yeah. gave he gave it up immediately. They said, Where did this character come from? He goes, Bob Hope. Yeah. He said I'm imitating Bob Hope. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't an actor, you know. Uh, and he just if you look at it, he, he kind of is. I love that he gave it up to him. Like
4: well, I, you know, you look at these. You know, you look at the evolution of film comedy, and it's it's all in generations and waves. And you you look at the the influences and where they came from before they went into film. You know, so you had Mel Brooks and Woody Allen coming from TV writers, and then of course in the seventies, it's stand up comics. It's it's yes. Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy, and, and 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 then Saturday Night Live, and that whole wave of. Of of comedy and and I have to say I've got a, a huge soft spot for Eddie Murphy's The Nutty Professor. Both of them. Yes, he did, he did yes. two. Hercules.
5: He's great. Yeah, he's <laughs>
4: terrific. Yes. Talk about a physical
2: performance! I I thought he was Beautiful. physically just just great in in
1: in, yeah.
4: in in those films. Yeah,
2: yeah. I still don't know why he and Jerry Lewis didn't do a buddy cop movie.
1: That's well, a, a, I you know, don't there know why is, they didn't do something? That is a absolutely. You know, that's so brilliant to the point of obviousness. Mm -hmm. Then, like, why didn't some guy in some office overlooking some smog bank somewhere go, hey, you know what? Would justify my check this week? What about – I wonder if that was ever even considered. What a great idea that would have been.
4: (laughs) As we were talking about this, it just occurred to me that – a film that i would recommend to anybody who's any in any way interested in, in in Jerry Lewis is a very late film he made called Funny Bones british yes thank yes, you yes. and in it you know we're talking about contemporary performers who are yes, very physical I know
2: exactly where you're going and i'm going so with happy
4: lee evans right he's just yes. evans terrific in that
2: oh, um, and yeah. that that skit and that he does Platt, in there oliver Platt. Yeah, And oh, Oliver Platt, God. that's right. Yeah. Deadpan, yeah. yeah. Oh, and to see Lee Evans, I mean, he is one of my favorite parts of the Fifth Element, just those those facial expressions, everything. He works so pitch perfect in there. And and him, yeah. of course, in uh, There's Something About Mary. I mean, every that's time you right. see that yeah. guy show up, yeah. he is fantastic. Even in, yeah. well, He was in Mouse Hunt, too, wasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> might have been. Oh, yeah, that's right, executive. he is. He yeah. is. Yeah, that was his big American film, wasn't it? He didn't
4: yeah. uh but you know, you think of Jesus, how could how could an actor Play opposite Jerry Lewis, and yes. be on the same planet in the same environment and work in the same mode. And Lee Evans, I, I thought, did a great job. I mean, he was yeah. he was completely insipidico with um, with Lewis, oh, and terrific. not many people. I'm going to revisit that. that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That one. It's yeah,
2: such an odd, odd film too. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. What's wrong?
3: What's wrong? 5, What's wrong? Are you now, <laughs> or have you ever? What's wrong?
1: One one three eight, prefix T H X. Oh.
6: Happy. I wanted to
3: touch you so many times. my mate has been acting very strange what's wrong
5: never mind
3: never mind never 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 no one can see us. This is
2: City Probe Scanner. We've run across some illegal sexual activity. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of another lighthearted comedy film, THX 1138. Until then, I'm... <laughs> sorry. I'm waiting for the... Sorry, you want me to go again? I'm sorry. No, no, I, I was waiting okay. for the uh the tsh there. So. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm waiting for the laughs, like Jerry was. So, it's very... <laughs> yeah. Try to get the <laughs> a <laughs> to laugh. Yeah, yeah.
1: So there we go. For the sight of Herb Edelman. Just uh, <laughs> very Edelman. Alright.
2: Until then, I want to thank this week's co host Peter, the last time you were on the show, you were discussing the film Dying of the Light. What's been going on with you and the film lately? Um, it's been going well. You know, The film is still
4: doing the route. It's been released on DVD here in the U.S., but it's still getting screened throughout Europe, and it's screening in Switzerland. It's opening a movie theater in Switzerland. Okay. Um, it's the premier engagement of a theater in, in that's been retrofitted for film, um, projection and the dying of the light is about the history of film projection. So, um, so it's, it's still, it's still puttering along and, uh, and I'm, I'm very happy with, with how it's done. Is that
1: something that's, that somebody in the States like me, a fellow like me might be able to see somewhere?
4: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, if you want to see, no, it, I'll I get send it. you. I, I mean, you can you can buy it on DVD, but I'll if you want to see it, I'll send you a link to it. Oh, we can get our
2: contact info through uh, through Mike. Okay, awesome. sure. Sure. There you yeah. go. That and uh, the Total Filmmaker and, and Craig will be also. Oh
4: there. right, yes, the Total Filmmaker. I just, <laughs> I hope I didn't download that thing illegally. I think it's legally available. On- I
1: think it's legal. I think Mike. it's
2: legal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll double check and okay. cut it out if it's, yeah. If it's illegal. Yeah. Can you talk about any of your new projects you got going on?
4: I just finished a documentary about the Inauguration Day weekend in in, uh, DC. I was down for that, and uh, I'm finishing that. And uh, I'm working on a project now that's a follow-up to the dying of the light are um, the history and culture of film collecting and particularly with a focus on how much of film history film collectors have saved mm. in the face of you know studio indifference and and just general neglect so that's an exciting project and uh it's still in the i'm still in the early stages of that so i'm in the honeymoon phase and it's and it's just great yeah
2: so, Craig, I hear that after Ron Howard is done doing the new Han Solo movie, that he's going to make a comic remake of another film called Cinderfeller Man. You're going to be in that?
1: <laughs> Do you know who I just talked to two nights ago with Max Baird Jr.? Uh, oh, wow. Peter, I I, I played uh, his father in uh, Cinderella Man and was told... Is that right? Uh, for, for, the, for all the right reasons, Not not... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was told for all the right reasons don't call Max Barrett Jr. because we have, you know, because of the way the film is constructed, we need a villain. Uh, we need to bend reality a little bit and uh, make, you know, the adversary a, a bit more of a villain, which they uh-huh. do. Uh, and, 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 um, and they were very careful about it. They didn't go too far over the top, but I got to tell you, I mean, I, who doesn't have their father issues? If somebody had made a film like that and cast my father as a villain, and that was the way he was going to be remembered. When he'd actually, you know, uh, right. Max Bear had achieved a, a lot of stuff. Uh, he was a, a, a true heavyweight uh, champion, and he was a great personality. That I, just some years later, which happened to be two years ago, on a whim, I got his number and I called him up. I called Max Bear Jr. up, and I said, "Listen, I, I think I wrote him an email first, and and uh, gave him my uh, my telephone number." Uh, and about a week later, I got a call at about 12 midnight, and he just went, "Birko, you son of a bitch, how are you? God damn it. And We talked for two hours. He oh, was wow. hilarious. So I spoke to him two nights ago. I called him from time to time. He had been, uh, he, he'll kill me for saying this, but this is what he is. He's 80 years old. He hits the bag for a half an hour every day. Uh, he fell down an escalator. He was pulling up a bag and he fell backwards over his back to 25, uh, stairs. And he, two months later, he's up, he's hitting the bag again.
0: Nothing's going to
1: take this guy out, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, so that Cinder fellow man, uh, ought to be made, but, uh, <laughs> Jethro should be in it. Uh, <laughs> Jethro, the unkillable but, but uh, I was so happy to that that film brought me together with that guy. Cause he really is a jet. He's just, they don't make him like him anymore. Uh-huh. And um, uh, yes, no, Cinder fellow man is not going to happen. Thankfully oh, okay. uh, no. that joke was made plenty of times, by the way, on the set. <laughs> <laughs> also another joke that was made on the set was uh, I can't remember if it was me or uh, Paul Giamatti, but it was the, the fight scenes were so long and laborious that we used to um, we came up with the idea of doing our DVD extras during the scene that while, while the other person was talking, we would talk about choices that we were making (laughs) under the other person's line. So we could get it out of the way. Um, But since then I've been, uh, I I I, I'm now writing with a, with a a partner, this guy, Kevin Arboe, who's a a terrific filmmaker. And uh, we've got a couple of things in, in development. That we're going to be pushing the next couple of months, and I am the most thing I'm most grateful about is a a TV show called uh, Unreal uh, that I'm doing, and we just got picked up for our uh, fourth season. And uh, the only other time as an actor that I've heard that many seasons has been in a restaurant, so I'm I'm thrilled. (laughs) I'm just so thrilled to be working, and it's a terrific show. If you ever get a chance, it's a it's a dark it's a it's a dark serial com- you know i wouldn't say comedy uh, but it's a look at um, what goes on behind uh, behind the scenes of, of reality television which is a, a hateful hateful non-existent genre you know but uh, <laughs> uh they, they, they it's it's written by somebody who really did work on one of those shows and they expose all the manipulations and uh, the kind of characters who run those sorts of things i and you know my my dream is to be doing what 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 uh what uh, peter is doing and and uh get some of these things up I, i've got a project one in particular i just i can't wait to to shoot i can't wait to do i just i want to i want to make one you know i want to make a film that's my driving passion a lot of the stuff is i'm doing to serve that and uh i commend you for getting anything done because i know how hard it is oh. these days. you know well thank you i really do mike if i may ask as a guest Aside from your show, which I'm a huge fan of, what, 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 what are you doing? Are you, do you, do you write and and produce and make films? Am I an idiot for even asking? Am I unaware of something? Did you write and produce Towering Inferno? Uh, You know, I would be (laughs) right now.
2: Okay. All right. No, though no, I just got yet another email. I was I'm uh, courting somebody, uh, uh, an old cast member. Speaking of THX 1138, I'm courting a cast member of THX 1138, and they're just like, "Oh, I watched you when you were on The Amazing Race, and I loved you in Chuck and Buck, and yada yada." I'm just like, "I really hate to break your heart, but I'm not that Mike White. I'm another guy."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I we do not I was just... look, what I was looking for you cuz you know we were trying to get our numbers straight there are 40 it is almost like the entire planet is named Mike White. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. I,
2: when I even go into the pool store and they're like, oh, what's your name? I'm like, Mike White. And I'm like, there's a lot of us in there. I'm going <laughs> to give you my address, <laughs> too. <laughs> it's like, right. How, how many Mike Whites <laughs> are at the local pool store? A lot of
1: us. So Yeah. Why don't yeah. you just call yourself Replicate 9755B? Yes.
4: There's really only the one Mike White. And it's oh, right. uh yeah. And it's the Mike White we're talking to, who's really this po- the podcast is is amazing, and I'm I'm thrilled to be on it as a co-host as opposed to a guest. So I hope you have me it, again. It, I hope I didn't it, embarrass you. It is myself. so
1: Mike Douglas retro that you refer to us as a co-host rather than a guest, you know? Yeah. It's very Mason nice. Reese like. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> fantastic.
2: <laughs> Anything <laughs> I can do to be more like Mason Reese, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Hey, thank you guys.
1: I'm going to go do that myself right now. Woohoo! I'm going to go do that.